Hebrews Introduction The first talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on October 5, 2014 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number one. Translation. Installment one. Accompanies this talk. We're going to begin in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament book of Hebrews. Hebrews is not a letter. I know that over time we grow accustomed to talking about the letters in the New Testament and that all of these are epistles, but it's helpful, I think, to recognize that that's not what we're looking at when we look at the book of Hebrews. It's not a letter. There's no to so-and-so, from so-and-so, hi and howdy, how you doing, and then at the end a greet so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and we're praying for you and so on. There's none of the personal connection between a particular individual in the letter and a particular individual or set of individuals that are known to the author that he's writing to. That doesn't seem to be the case here. So what are we looking at instead? We're looking at what I think is, I would call it a circular. It's an address that I think Paul wrote. It doesn't ultimately matter whether Paul wrote it, but it just it makes sense to me that Paul is the author. That Paul wrote this address to a group of people across the Roman Empire with the intention of it being copied and sent to various locations and circulated among the community. The community that he's addressing, I will argue, is community of Jewish believers in Jesus, Jewish Jesus believers that have come into being with the proclamation of the gospel, the spread of the gospel by Paul and other apostles, and they've gone into one community after another community of Jews have proclaimed the gospel, and many of them have believed. Now, the problem is, as we know from several pieces of evidence in the New Testament, the plight of Jewish Jesus believers was not great. That when they came to believe in Jesus, it typically brought persecution, especially persecution at the hands of their fellow Jews who were not believing. So they would come to Jesus, and they would get thrown in prison. They would get ripped off. They'd have all kinds of injustice done to them with no recourse. If they appealed to a judge, the judge would just ignore their case and let them be victimized and let them be dealt with unjustly. They were killed. All kinds of mean, nasty things were happening to these Jewish Jesus believers. It went on for years, years, stretching into decades, and after a while, some of these Jewish Jesus believers who had believed in Jesus were beginning to grow weary. And we'll, we'll see that word being used a couple of times in Hebrews, don't grow weary, he says. They were beginning to grow weary. What had Jesus done for them? Nothing but bring grief into their life. And they could take the pressure off if they would simply walk away from Jesus and get reabsorbed back into their ancestral religion of Judaism. If they would just start 
being Jews like they had been raised to be and practice what Jews practice and say what Jews say and think like Jews think and not say anything about this Jesus dude being the Messiah. If they would just back off and stop pushing him, then they would be welcomed with open arms back into the security and the safety of the shared consensus among the Jewish community. It's all they had to do. So the dilemma that they're faced with is, do I keep on keeping on in my belief in Jesus and continue to experience persecution and grief and sorrow? Or can I just forget this whole thing? It was a mistake. I shouldn't have gone down this path. I'll just be a Jew like I was born to be. And that's the dilemma they faced. And as they face that dilemma, some of them apparently are beginning to succumb to that temptation and are walking away from Jesus, or at least are on the verge of walking away from Jesus. Paul is aware of that phenomenon. And so being aware of that phenomenon, I think the book of Hebrews is written to them to encourage them to keep the faith, encourage them to persevere in their belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay, so what we have in Hebrews, what we are going to find is it's roughly half and half. Half of it is exhortation. And what I mean by exhortation is Paul basically saying to them, you don't want to be walking away from Jesus. Don't, don't do that. That's not a good idea, so don't do that. I encourage you to stay the course. I encourage you to hang in there. I encourage you to remain faithful to what you have once believed. Don't walk away from it. And he comes at that from a number of different angles, but I, I, I can't remember. I think I counted once. I think there's seven different exhortations in the book, but, and they all come at it from a slightly different angle. But the bottom line is all the same. Stay the course. Don't give up. Persevere. Continue to believe in Jesus and don't walk away from him. So half the book is that. The other half of the book is an extended, and I do mean extended, it is an extended theological and even an exegetical argument. And what I mean by exegetical is half the book takes Psalm 110, and he argues that because Psalm 110 says what it says, here's what we can know about Jesus. It's the most fascinating book in the New Testament with regard to a model for how to interpret and understand the Old Testament scripture because it is a phenomenally well-argued, thoroughly argued, rational, commonsensical, just makes all the sense in the world. So it's a tremendous model for how to do exegesis of the Old Testament. So Paul takes certain evidence from the Old Testament and makes his case that Jesus really is the Messiah. Now, I need to give you a little background. It's specifically, he's going to make the case that Jesus really is the Messiah, even though the dude was an ordinary mortal human being who got himself crucified by the Romans. That's the issue in the book of Hebrews. He's an ordinary mortal human being who was killed. He was defeated. He was shamed. He was smashed by the enemy, Rome, the godless enemy, Rome, captured him, arrested him, and crucified him. Hardly Messiah material on the surface of it in the eyes of a Jew. And yet, nonetheless, even though he was that one who was crucified by the Romans, nonetheless, he's exactly the Messiah sent from God that the Old Testament prophets told us about. But he has to make a case for that. 
He has to make the argument for that. And a large part of the argument that he's going to make for that is to explain why does it make sense that God would send his Messiah into the world to die? Why does that make any sense? And he's going to make sense out of that by talking about Jesus being our high priest and as our high priest bringing himself, his own life, as a propitiatory offering in order to appeal to God for mercy as a high priest. And that makes all the difference in the world to us. That's our salvation. So, of course, God sent his Messiah into the world to die because we needed an advocate. And he was sending the Messiah to be precisely that advocate for us and to do the work of the high priest on our behalf. But all that needs to be argued. So he has an extended argument for several chapters where piece by piece, bit by bit, line by line, he makes a logical argument for why, given what the Old Testament prophecy stated, given what we find predicted in Psalm 110, don't you see his death and humanity doesn't disqualify him from being the Messiah. It qualifies him to be the Messiah. Therefore, don't give up in your belief. Stay the course and persevere. Keep believing that he is who he said he was. Okay? Now, what I want to do today, and by the way, we'll we'll use the same format that I have been accustomed to using recently. At any point you want to carry on a conversation with me, just raise your hand and we'll have a conversation. But what I want to do today is kind of help us understand the dynamic behind what it is that Paul is addressing here. And here's the critical question. How do people who have believed unbelieve? If you've already come to belief, how do you stop believing what you've already come to believe? That doesn't make any sense. Now, it makes sense if you have new evidence, right? If new evidence comes along that kind of shakes the foundation for your belief, then you're willing to rethink your belief and change your mind and come to an opposing belief because you have new evidence that you have to take into account. These people are not on the verge of unbelief because they have new evidence. That's not what's going on here. So why would people who have heard the gospel message, Jesus is the Messiah, and they've believed that Jesus is the Messiah, when they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, they knew that they were believing that the crucified Jesus was the Messiah. They knew that they were believing that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. An ordinary mortal human being who got crucified is the Messiah. They've already believed that an ordinary mortal human being who was crucified is the Messiah. So why now, all of a sudden, would the fact that he was an ordinary human being be a problem? Why would all of a sudden the fact that he was crucified by the Romans, why would that all of a sudden be a problem? They crossed that hurdle before. How do you uncross that hurdle? Why now all of a sudden does it raise its head? That I think we need to understand. And to understand that, we have to understand, and Hebrews will explore this a little bit, but I would argue that it underlies everything that the New Testament teaches. There are many, many passages that we could go to that, if they don't teach it explicitly, kind of hint at this. And that is the relationship between how I think and my heart, and the state or the condition of my heart. If my heart is not rightly oriented toward God, then my head, my eyes will not see clearly. My head will not think straight. I will be unable to grasp intellectually the truth about God 
if I don't much, if I'm not much in the mood for liking God, if I'm not much in the mood for wanting to serve Him and honor Him and and obey Him, if that's not really the frame of my heart, then my mind is not going to be prepared to accede to what it is that God says is true. I'm going to be, in, later in Hebrews, he's going to say, by now you ought to be teachers, but you have become dull. And that's what he means by that. By now you ought to be teachers, but you've become sort of heavy of mind, sluggish of mind, slow of mind to grasp the truth of, in, this, in that case, what he's talking about is the Old Testament, to grasp the truths that are foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Now, why is that the case? I mean, that's just a given in the New Testament. That's New Testament epistemology, is that you cannot separate your knowledge from your spiritual condition, from your spirituality. That's why, by the way, that belief is such a big deal throughout the whole New Testament. Why is the indicator, why is the kind of the litmus test or the crux of salvation believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it because God is just really into people getting the right answer? I don't think so. It's not really about belief in the New Testament. Belief only signals something deeper. What belief signals is that inward heart orientation toward willingness to honor and serve and obey God. We like God, and we want to be rightly related to him. And your belief that Jesus is the Messiah is the sign, the symptom, the emblem of the fact that that's where your heart is at. So it's really your insides that save you, not your belief, not your confession. Because if you don't get around to believing in Jesus because, you know, you like you grew up in Antarctica and didn't go to Sunday school and you just don't know anything about that, that's not a mark against you. If you have that heart that is oriented toward God, you are a child of God and you are going to be saved. It's not the belief per se that is the issue. It's what that belief signifies. It's what that belief represents. Otherwise, we're in that strange position of serving a God who says, okay, I've got a question, and if you get the right answer, I'm going to give you eternal life, and if not, I'm going to destroy you. Strange, strange thing to believe. But most of us grew up believing something like that. That's what we were taught. No, it's not about the act of believing. It's about what we're going to do with God. So what about the well-quoted, um, I can't remember the one, that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So that's what everyone quotes. Right. Um, so where, where would you take that as? Well, we have to look at that in its context. Who, that Paul's writing that in, in Romans in the chapter where he's answering questions to unbelieving Jews, and he's saying to them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or unless you're talking about Peter's sermon in Acts, which maybe that's the one you're quoting. Uh, either one, yeah. It just That's what most of the time is, is quoted in you know, Sunday school and everything, so right. that if you actually believe it, then you are going to heaven instead of having it, right. you know... Uh, yeah, we, all of these things we have to look at in their context, and not just their literary context, but their historical context. When Peter's preaching that sermon, he's preaching that sermon to Jews in Jerusalem who for the last several years have been many of them eyewitnesses to and certainly secondhand witnesses to all the miracles that Jesus has performed, 
to all the claims that Jesus has been making. So they're not ignorant. As Paul puts it to Festus in, in uh, his trial, these didn't happen in a closet, dude. These were out in plain open. You know about it as much as I do. You've heard these things. You know what transpired. So to people who know what's transpired and are not ignorant of the claims of Jesus, but go, I don't want to believe that. If you reject Jesus, you'll not be saved. But why are they rejecting the truth about Jesus? Out of a heart that's hardened against that truth. Not out of ignorance. It's not out of lack of knowledge that they're not believing it. It's, out of, it's a rejection of the truth that they know and have been exposed to and have confronted. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes more sense. Thank you. <laughs> to follow up on that is the distinction between Peter, Paul, and Jesus' time is, and our time is in the former. Believing in Jesus and his miracles are, for, for lack of better words, the big elephant in the room because they happened. You can't explain them anywhere else. Even Nicodemus said you can't do these things unless you're from God. There's no other way. And if you openly say Jesus is from God, you're going to get persecuted. And so Jesus and the apostles' time believing in Jesus and that he's sent from God is the big litmus test of faith. Now, in our time, it's something saying that Jesus is sent from God is very easy to do, especially when you're in a culture in which everyone around you believes in. So it's, in a way, herd mentality. Right. Yeah, exactly. And therefore, it doesn't mean the same thing. I mean, you didn't have anything to gain in the time of Jesus and Paul by believing in Jesus, as, as I've already pointed out. What's it going to get you? Persecution, grief, sorrow. So why would you believe it? Because it's true. And you don't really have any choice. Because why would you not believe what's true? That's why the first generation believers believed it. When you live in Christendom, there's jobs available, there's help available, there's friends available, there's all kinds of perks that come from believing that Jesus is the Christ within a church culture. So what does that mean, the fact that they believe that Jesus is the Christ? Hard to say. They may be believers, they may be children of God, they may be on their way into the eternal kingdom of God, or they may just be hitching their wagon to that. I lost it. What's the matter? <laughs> anyway. Out of sake of convenience. Yeah, out of some kind of safety and convenience. Yeah, and on to a second question is, obviously, in, in the day of Peter, Paul, and the apostle, being a Jew and a believer in Jesus was a one-way ticket to persecution. In fact, you might as well be better off as a Gentile, maybe right. even believing in Jesus, than a Jew believing in Jesus. Right, exactly. I'm not sure if you would be an expert on this, but... How would you say that today that Jews who openly profess belief in Jesus are treated today versus the time of the apostles within Jewish culture? Yeah, I, I don't know firsthand. I have heard, in fact, fairly recently, I heard a story of a, of a Jewish woman who's a believer who wanted to have her son's bar mitzvah, and the local synagogue would not do it because she believed in Jesus. So it was a very clear and explicit rejection. You're not welcome here. You're not a, we don't allow you to be a part of our community because you believe in Jesus. And I think that's probably pretty common, pretty standard, because that remains to this day. I've heard other people say that an American Jew, for example, can, be, can believe anything, Buddhism, all kinds of New Age stuff, 
witchcraft. You can be a Jew and be a witch, but don't you dare believe in Jesus. I mean, it's the one thing that is forbidden by modern Jewish unbelieving in Jesus culture. So I think that's been longstanding, and it began all the way back here and led to the writing of this work that we're going to study. Back to Tamara's question. Notice the difference between how Paul dealt with the, the Jews and the sermon that he gave on, at Mars Hill in Athens. When he doesn't assume that you know who Jesus is and ought to be able to believe in Jesus, Jesus is kind of an afterthought. It's kind of the afterthought that drives everybody crazy, but it's kind of an afterthought in his sermon. For the most part, he's appealing to them to take God seriously, the one true, real God that exists, and to take him seriously. And that's where he starts with them, because he's not assuming that they know the facts about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. But they can, by being rightly related to God, they can put themselves in a position where Jesus will be their advocate as much as Jesus is anybody else's advocate. And that seems to be Paul's assumption there. Okay, was there anything else on that? Okay, what I was talking about is the relationship between spirituality and our knowledge then. So what I think is the case back here in the first century is these Jews who are Jesus believers, they have become believers in Jesus all right, but they have never really grasped intellectually and philosophically why it is that God would send his Messiah into the world to die at the hands of the Romans. It's not that they've understood that. It's that they've kind of stuck that on the back burner. Well, I don't know. I don't know why God would do that. But I do know that Jesus is the Messiah, and I want to follow him, and I want to be his disciple, and so on, which is fine. You can leave all that stuff on the back burner and just get on with getting on with being a disciple of Jesus as long as things are going well, as long as it's not costing you too dearly. But when it starts to cost you too dearly, then all of a sudden those unresolved issues that are back there on the back burner become weapons of your unbelief. They become the resources that unbelief is going to use to excuse itself Why do I not believe? Because Jesus was just an ordinary mortal. I don't know what overcame me that I ever thought that that wasn't a problem, but that's a huge problem. He can't be the Messiah. Well, intellectually, that's where they've always been. But probably on the force of a couple of other pieces of evidence, they've been willing to look past that. And I think probably the evidence that led them to look past that was the dude was raised from the dead on the basis of the testimony of those people who claimed that he came back from the dead. God vindicated Jesus' claim to be the Messiah by not allowing him to stay in the grave, brought him up from the dead. Well, you can see that's powerful. That's incredibly powerful. It's intellectually powerful evidence. On that basis, I believe that he's the Messiah. Well, why did God let him die in the first place? Ah, I don't know. That's weird. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know. But he raised him from the dead, and I believe that he's the Messiah. That'll work, and you can stay there, and you can rest there as long as you believe it's worth it, as long as you think this is reality, that this is substantive, that this is where I need to be. But the minute you begin to rethink whether you even want to be there, want to be a disciple of Jesus, then all those unresolved questions come flooding back. Okay, well, but he's an ordinary human being who got crucified by the Romans. He's not really a candidate to be the Messiah. So you with me? Persecution has a way of sorting us out. It has a way of testing us. It's when we go through what 
Paul calls trials and tribulations, and persecution is a huge test and tribulation, all of a sudden it clarifies who we are and what we want and why we want it. Are we children of God who want to honor God and know God and fear God and obey God? And why? Because he's God and for no other reason. If that who we are, well, tribulation will find out. Because if we have stripped away from us all the other benefits from believing in God, take, take Job, for example. You know, remember what Satan said to God? Well, sure, he follows you. Look how rich he is. Of course he follows you. God says, well, take it away then. Take it away and we'll see if he still believes after that. And that James cites the perseverance of Job. Job tested, hung in there, even when all the other bennies of belief in God were taken away from him and stripped away from him, he still believed. Why? Because there was nowhere else to go. God is God. Who else can I serve? Who else can I believe? What else can I do? What's a creature to do except worship and serve the creator? Nothing else makes sense. So of course I have to stay here. Though he slay me, yet will I worship him. So he was tested and found that the why for why he believes and who he was, was solid. It was where it should be. It's where where all of us should be. What Paul is concerned about is that his readers here are, they've believed, but the why behind their belief is not solid. They don't believe because it's true. They don't believe because it's what God is doing in the world. They've believed for other reasons. And the persecution is beginning to expose how shallow and impermanent those other reasons are. They're not good enough. They're not the right reasons. So what Paul is going to do here is to encourage them to reestablish their faith on the solid ground of why they should believe and what really there is for them to get out of it. Not what they thought they were going to get out of it, but what they in fact truly are going to get out of it. Believe because that's what, what your life and existence is focused on. I don't know why I ask stuff like this, but here goes. <laughs> I know that you, you have, like all of us, certain position on you know, whatever you have a position on, but your phrase that you've used seven or eight times, that this ordinary mortal human being got himself crucified, as I've been reading Hebrews for the last 10 days or so, kind of preparing myself for this, I've read a lot of commentators as well. And um, a common theme among, I would say, 75% of the commentaries I've read is that the first, I'm going to guess, well, the first chapter and into the second chapter, many of the commentators said over and over again, this is the writer establishing the deity of Christ without any uncertainty, the deity in essence and so forth. Then there were some commentators that took a different view, but I would say they were greatly in the minority. The Jews that are receiving this circular, how do we know that they didn't already hold Jesus as being an extraordinary uh, mortal human being, but not an ordinary mortal human being? How do we know that the writer isn't assuming that they already think he's extraordinary as opposed to an ordinary human being. Are you going to be building a background case yeah, for I, that Yeah, I think so. And to the extent that I don't fully answer that question, can we 
can you remember to revisit that and we'll and and we'll get to the bottom of it. But I, as we go through chapter one, I think it'll be clear what I think is going on here and how he's answering them and what the background of that is. And are you going to then answer this preponderance of commentators that seems to be saying that the writer is trying to establish that he wasn't? Yeah, I, I can address that. I, I mean, it's actually a little bit mysterious to me why, if you've gone to the trouble to write a commentary on the first two chapters of Hebrews, how on earth can you come to that conclusion? That's a little mysterious to me. I think the answer to that is they're imposing their theology on the text rather than deriving their theology from the text. I think that has to be the answer because you'll have to answer this for yourself, but I think when you look at the first two chapters the way I'm going to look at them, it becomes so clear and compelling what it is that he's saying that I don't know how you can come to any other conclusion. But you'll have to find me out. I mean, you'll have to answer that for yourself. Now, I've used the word ordinary mortal human being. Now, there's a sense in which, obviously, Jesus is very extraordinary. So I don't, by ordinary, I don't mean he was ordinary in his dignity or significance, because what he's going to argue here in the first two chapters is there is no more important person in all of created reality than Jesus, discounting God himself and his transcendence. You can't get any more important than Jesus. So that kind of makes you extraordinary. So in that sense, he's extraordinary. But what I, when, I, when I use the word ordinary, I mean he's not a superman. A superman. He's not a... What's, X-Man? Yeah, he's not an X-Man. He's not a comic book hero. He doesn't have supernatural powers. He's just like you and me. And he is so like you and me that if you crucify him, he dies. He didn't have the magical powers to be able to withstand the Romans' cross. It killed him. That's how ordinary he was. I'm getting a sense of who he's writing to as you, as you talk about, because you keep using the term Messiah, and in our talks about the Messiah, there's all these sort of different kinds of Messiahs to the Hebrew people, the, the deliverer, the, the appointed, the anointed deliverer. And, uh, you know, great, the Maccabees could have been considered Messiahs, mm-hmm. you know, sent by God at the right time to do this thing to deli- and to deliver their people. But when Paul talks about Messiah Jesus... He's delivering the real Jesus and the real thing he did, and he's speaking it into a Hebrew culture that are real familiar with the concept of Messiah, but they're investing their belief in all these other aspects of Messiahship that Jesus wasn't really concerned with. It's almost like they bought Jesus with all the options, Mm -hmm. but that's not him. I mean, it sounds to me like they wanted this exciting deliverance from their present condition. They want more to immortality now. They want peace and safety now. They want happiness now. They want the end of all. You know, they want their Sabbath now, which is kind of cool, but it strikes me that people could be feeding them that mm-hmm. in the name of Jesus, right. whereas Paul is saying it's more important than that. It's your sin. Right. The, the disappointing part of that is you still got to live your life. Your deliverance from sin in that respect will take place at your death. Right. And, so, and it, it's like the Jesus movement. Jesus was being preached into a culture of kids who all were familiar with the words of Christianity. But the Jesus they were buying into and being excited about was the happy Jesus. And they fell away. 
So, I, so, so it seems to me they were being sold Jesus with all the options. Mm-hmm. And how many times have, have you heard people walking away from the faith saying Christianity doesn't work? And the one they were sold that didn't. Yeah, yeah. the one they were sold didn't work because Jesus never came to accomplish those things that we marketed it, it as. The age of Aquarius. Okay, so Paul's goal, there, he, ha- he has two goals here. Theologically, his goal is to make the case that Jesus' humanity and his death are not marks against his being the Messiah, they are marks in favor of him being the Messiah. So that's the one theological point that he's going to just drive at on every page of, of his argument. That's where he's headed. And then, for lack of a better word, pastorally, that is, as somebody, as a person, wanting to shepherd the souls, the persons, the other persons out there, as a pastor, he wants to convince his readers of the importance of hanging in there and persevering in their belief. And all of his exhortations are aimed at that. Now, very Jewish book, incredibly Jewish book, and it's answering Jewish, first century Jewish questions. So that raises the question whether those of us who were raised as Christian Gentiles who don't have these problems, I mean, if you were raised as Christian Gentiles, Jesus was a human being who was crucified by the Romans. Yeah? And your point is? I mean, that's why they call it Christmas, right? We all know that there's this man who was at least half man or who was holy man as well as holy God. We know that this holy man as well as holy God was crucified by the Romans and was raised from the dead. I mean, that's the whole point. That's not a problem to us. So if that's not a problem to us, is this going to be a wasted book on us? Well, in the first place, his crucifixion may not be a problem to us, but it remains a very significant issue for Jews today. So if we are ever in any circumstances where we need to explain the gospel to Jews, Hebrews is going to be critical. Understanding the argument of Hebrews is going to be critical to equip us to be able to to talk to modern Jews about Jesus. For us, it's going to clarify two things in particular. It will clarify for us the role and the identity of Jesus. We may not have their problems, but we have other problems. We've been taught a Jesus who is not the Jesus who is there. Not the Jesus of history, not the Jesus of the Jews, not the Jesus of the resurrection, not the Jesus of the eternal kingdom of God. We have been taught a kind of fairy tale kind of Jesus that we believe in. That needs to be corrected. And I think Hebrews will do a lot to correct that because Paul can't answer this question to his fellow Jews without clarifying exactly who Jesus was, what his role was, and what his identity was. So this this work will be helpful to us in that regard. And it will clarify for us the gospel and the nature of our salvation because we have invented a lot of kind of fictional stories and ideas about salvation as well that aren't exactly what the apostles taught. Well, we're going to get a large dose of what exactly is our salvation and what, it cons- what does it consist of? What does it do and what doesn't it do? And we're going to get that clarified for us. So that'll be very helpful to us even if we don't have the reader's original question. It will encourage us and hopefully motiva- motivate us to follow Jesus. 
because that's what all of his ex- Paul's exhortations are. Be a disciple, follow him, pay attention to him, listen to him, sit at his feet and learn from this man, Jesus. And he's passionately encouraging us to do that, reminding us why it's important to do so. We may not have a problem with Jesus' humanity, at least not as we understand it, nor a problem with his crucifixion, but we do, in modern times, have a problem with Jesus. We have different problems with Jesus. Oh, he was so long ago, he's no longer really relevant to us. I mean, it was like thousands of years ago. How can he be really all that relevant to us? How do we even know the real Jesus, right? I mean, he's been told and retold and retold and retold, and people of the church has made stuff up, that corrupt church has made up stories, has invented all kinds of things about him. The Jesus of Nazareth so long ago probably maybe didn't even exist because there's so much distance in time between us and him that how can we really trust the record any longer? That's our problem. Well, part of what the book of Hebrews will do is, I think, remind us, well, you better settle that issue. You better figure that out because there's nothing more important in your existence than to decide to follow Jesus. And here's why, and he'll, he'll explain why. So that's, I think, what we have in store for us is, is real clarity about the gospel and Jesus in particular. Okay, in the time that's remaining, I want to begin to jump into the argument now And I'm just going to deal with one word in the first chapter. If you've had a chance to look at the translation, you will notice that I leave a certain word untranslated. Most of our English translations talk about, for example, when it talks about angels several times in the first chapter and a half, and it's it's comparing the sun to the angels. And the whole point of the section is to say, the sun is so much more important and more significant than the angels. Okay, I didn't translate angels as angels. I left it the Greek word angeloi. There's a Greek word angelos. The plural is angeloi. So angelos is one. Angeloi is more than one. An angelos literally means a messenger, And so if I send a message to you through some intermediary, he would be an angelos that I have sent, a messenger that I have sent. And occasionally, a few times, angelos is used in that sense in the New Testament, but mostly not. So everywhere else where it's not translated messenger, our English Bibles, our English translations, translate it angel or angels. Now, I'm going to argue that that, that's a big mistake here in chapter 1 and 2 of Hebrews. He's not talking about angels. Neither is he talking about messengers exactly, not in the sense of a human messenger that somebody sends. He's not talking about messengers, and he's not talking about angels. He's talking about something else completely different. So what is that? I think we could translate angeloi here in these chapters as theophanies. Now, that's a a word that theologians better around. I don't know if you know what a theophany is, but a theophany comes from two words. Theos means God, and phaneo means to make manifest. So when God is made manifest, that's a theophany. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai and he saw this bush that was burning without being consumed, and it ended up being Yahweh, 
It ended up being the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who spoke to him out of the bush. A theologian would call that a theophany. That's God appearing to Moses in the form of a bush that's aflame without being burned up, without being consumed. When Abraham was just minding his own business and three people come along and say, I'm going to have dinner with you, and Abraham feeds them, and somewhere along the line discovers that he's feeding Yahweh. That's Yahweh and two angels with him that he's offering dinner to and he's playing a host to. Yahweh came in the form of a traveling human being and manifest himself, made himself manifest to Abraham. That's a theophany. When this stranger comes along and challenges Jacob to a wrestling match, and they have a wrestling match, and Jacob finally, wait, how's that work? He pins him, right, until the wrestler cheats and wounds him on the side. That man that he wrestles with is a theophany. That was Yahweh that he was wrestling with. God, being the transcendent creator and of all things and author of all things, can at any time he wants to inter- insert himself into the story in whatever form he wants to. A lampstand, a bush, a tree, a donkey, a man, or someone in the form of a man. There's no limits to the form that God could take to manifest himself to someone else, to have some image be him within the story. When that happens, not every time it happens, but many times when that happens, the theophany of God is called, and you'll recognize this language from the King James, the angel of the Lord, or the angel of, and what they translate the the Lord, is literally Yahweh in the Hebrew, the, the name for God. So he's the angel of Yahweh, or in the Greek, the angelos of Yahweh. Well, the angel of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord, is not an angel. The angel of Yahweh, the angelos of Yahweh, is a visible manifestation, a visible, a theophany of Yahweh. That's what the word means. If you read carefully the Exodus account, remember they were led through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night, or did I get that backwards? But a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. And the pillar leads them from place to place throughout the wilderness. And then every time that it gets a chance, Yahweh says, I will go before you and I will lead the way. I don't think there's any question, but what is being described there is the, the pillar of cloud or fire is a theophany of Yahweh himself. That's Yahweh on the march leading them through the wilderness. And that, Moses knows that. That's how he's thinking of it. And at one point, God describes the pillar of fire as my angelos. My angelos will lead you. Well, is that his angel that's leading him? No. Because Yahweh says, I'm leading you. That's his theophany that's leading them through the wilderness. Now, we we could multiply examples, but I think you're getting the point. There is a use of the word angelos where it doesn't mean angel. It means a manifestation of God himself, a theophany. That, I think, is what's going on in chapter 1 of Hebrews. 
Apparently what has happened, and we'll have to revisit this as we get into the details of it, but apparently what has happened is a theory of what the Messiah would be has come to the attention of these Jesus-believing Jews, and as they begin to see how implausible it is that an ordinary human being would be the Messiah, they've begun to think that what we should have expected is a theophany itself. God's Messiah was going to be God himself in the form of a human being. He wouldn't be a human being. He would be God himself in the form of a human being, much like the guy that had dinner with Abraham or the guy that wrestled with Jacob or any number of other times when God, throughout the story of the Old Testament, appeared as a man to other people. Well, they're saying, well, if that was good enough for the Old Testament, why shouldn't we expect that of God's Messiah when God sends his Messiah? The Messiah is not going to be just a funky old son of David, human being. He's going to be God in the form of a son of David. He's going to be a theophany. So the argument of Hebrews 1 and 2 is, who is more important, who is more significant in God's scheme of things and God's purposes? An ordinary child of David who has been promised that he will be the embodiment of the rule of God himself eternally in the everlasting kingdom of God or a theophany. And the point that he's making is, though he be a human being, this human being is significantly more important than any theophany ever was. I mean, where's the burning bush now? Where's, where's the guy who had dinner with Abraham? Who's the professional wrestler who challenged Jacob? I mean, where are they now? They're not even in the picture. They were temporary. They were ephemeral. They only played a particular role at a particular time when God wanted to convey something to a particular person for then. And once he had done his job, he popped out of existence never to come back into existence again. Not really ultimately all that significant. But Jesus, that human being, is going to be king of kings and Lord of lords in the eternal kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. Way more important than any theophany. He may not be God, but he is the Christ sent by God. He, and there's a sense in which he's God that Hebrews 1 is going to talk about, is going to explore. There's a sense in which he's God, but he's not a theophany. He's not God himself. He's Jesus of Nazareth. A theophany would have one social security number back in the day when Social Security still existed. Right? He would have one Social Security number. Jesus and God have two Social Security numbers. There's Jesus of Nazareth, got his number down at the office, and there's Yahweh, who, if he ever got around to it, got his number at the office. They are distinct, and yet they are one. There's a sense in which they are one while they are distinct persons. A theophany would not, there would be no distinction between the theophany and Yahweh. The burning bush was Yahweh. That was the angelos of Yahweh, the visible manifestation of Yahweh himself. So Paul's readers, some of them at least, have come to expect that the Messiah should be a theophany. There shouldn't be any distinction between the Messiah and Yahweh himself. But Jesus was a man who grew up in Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is not a theophany. 
He's not Yahweh. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul is going to have to make the case, yeah, that's true, but you can't get any more important than who he is. And we dare not disregard him. We dare not shine him on because, as he's going to put it here toward the end, if God punished people for ignoring what his theophany said, you think he's going to let it go if people ignore what his son says, the Christ, the Messiah? Because the Messiah is infinitely more important than any theophany was. This is fascinating. Thank you. I guess the question that comes to my mind is, always come to our minds, and that is, would Paul's readers have understood his use of the word anglos, anglos the way you are describing it? I think so, and and I I think quite evidently so. We're, We're the ones that have been faked out by by just generation after generation of what I would consider mistranslation. Here's where I first got onto this. It was in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's speech. Not being that well versed in the Old Testament and not having noticed it before, I was reading Stephen's speech, and this is after 40 years had passed, and this is our New American Standard translation, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look, and so on and so forth. Well, after that, I went back and looked at the account, and that's exactly what the account says. The angelos spoke to him out of the bush, and what did the angelos say? I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, what, a ventriloquist angel? I mean, why why is he saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if he's not Yahweh, but is an angel? The reasonable way to reconcile that is that Stephen, probably with all of his contemporaries, recognizes that when the angel speaks out of the bush, it doesn't mean angel. When the angelos speaks out of the bush, it doesn't mean angel. That's why he can go on without blinking and say, I am the God of, of your fathers. All of them knew it was Yahweh speaking, and all of them knew that the text says it was the Angelos that spoke to him from the bush. So I I think they clearly had a a meaning for that word that we we don't have. Thank you. There is one lexicon who offers as as a meaning for uh, Angelos, the, the entry says, a theophonic angel. And I don't know what a theophonic angel is, but I, I think he was on to what I'm describing here. But he just couldn't bring himself to not call it an angel. So, Are there any angeloi that aren't theophanies? Yes, yes. And is Paul talking about them at all in this No, passage? I don't think so. Okay. Not in these chapters. When the angelos Gabriel comes to Mary and announces her conception of Jesus, it's Gabriel. Mm-hmm. And notice, every time you have a real bona fide angel showing up, he never says, I'm Yahweh, I'm God. He always says, God sent me, or I have a message from God, or whatever. Or they end up, when you bow to them, they say, no, 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 don't bow to me, I'm just, I'm just a servant. Mm-hmm. The angelos of Yahweh on Mount Sinai, take off your stinking sandals, Moses, you're on holy ground. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that, oh, I'm just an angel stuff. Mm-hmm. No, this is God. 
And if you worshipped him, you'd be right, doing right. You'd be worshipping the God who deserves our worship. So a very vast difference between an angel that's actually an angel and an angelos that is a theophany, mm-hmm. a manifestation of God. It just struck me, kind of looking at the first chapter or so of Hebrews, that it, it seems a little bit strange for him to be saying that a theophany of Yahweh is less important than the Messiah, because it's God, it's Yahweh. Even though it's like a manifestation of God, it's still That's Yahweh. Right. But, but, the, but the angel messengers who aren't theophanies of Yahweh would actually be less important than Yahweh. Yeah. You have to make a distinction between a theophany of Yahweh and Yahweh himself. Mm. Paul would never say that Jesus is more important than Yahweh himself. But is Jesus more important than a particular theophany of Yahweh? Absolutely. Because the role that the Christ plays is vastly more important and more significant than the role that any theophany plays. It's the role that they play that he's comparing. In fact, he makes that distinction because notice what he says. It's in paragraph 5. It would be chapter 2, 5 through 8 in your Bibles. What is man that you remember him, even the son of man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the angeloi. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Indeed, you have appointed him over the works of your hands. Notice you have made him a little lower than the angeloi. Well, the thing that's amazing about that is the whole argument up to this point is how more important than the angeloi he is. So why is he quoting a psalm that says you have made him a little lower than the angeloi? Because the psalmist is describing him a little lower than the angeloi as, as a, that's a place of exaltation because he's looking at the angeloi with respect to who they are angeloi of, Yahweh. So ontologically, a human being is less significant and less important than God himself and therefore is less important than the angeloi of God to the extent that the angeloi of God is our God himself, Jesus being a human being, is lower than them. But the role that he's been given is more significant than them. He's taken a man and has made an ordinary, normal, created human being and has, has given to that created, ordinary human being the role of embodying the very reign and rule of God himself for all eternity. Uh, just an absolutely phenomenal thing that God has done. And, I mean, you, you can feel the tension of it. If you're a Jew, a first century Jew, you're going to balk at the idea that a man could be more important than a theophany. That doesn't make any sense. You should have one God before you, God Almighty. And if, when God manifests himself, surely those are higher than Jesus was, Jesus of Nazareth. And what what Paul is saying is if we understood who Jesus of Nazareth is and the role that God has granted to him, no, then you'll recognize that he's more exalted even than the theophany themselves. Did the Hebrews have a word that meant angel and it did double duty as to mean theophany? Or did they have a separate word for angel? It's just like Greek. They have a word malach which means messenger, and that's the word that gets translated angel when they're talking about angels. 
and, and, and it's the word that's used, the malak of Yahweh, that gets translated the angelos of Yahweh. So it, it parallels exactly the Greek. By the way, that weird passage in Galatians that you all stumble over, why the law then, Paul asks, it was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels, my translation has, by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. I mean, if you're like me, the first time you read that, having been ordained through angels, where did that come from? And you go back to Exodus and you look for angels in, on Mount Sinai at the time of the giving of the law, and there's not an angel in the place. There's not an angel in 50 miles of the place. So where is he getting that? And what was always told me is, well, he j- just that was extra revelation that Paul had. He knew what we don't know from the Old Testament, and that is that angels were mediating this thing, were ordaining this thing. Well, you don't have the problem if angeloi there means theophonic manifestations of God, because those are all over the text. A shining, glowing mountain, an earthquake, a cloud that comes over the, that just is God. That's Yahweh manifesting himself to Israel, pulling out all the stops, manifesting himself to Israel. That's what Paul's talking about. The law being ordained through these visible manifestations of Yahweh himself coming down to the people of Israel and striking a covenant with them. That's what he means by that. It's not angels. Paul says that women should keep their hair covered because of the angels. Okay, that's a little bit different. There's one other way that angelos gets used. There's another word. Angelos means messenger. There's another word in Greek, angelia. Angelia is a message. And there are, I think, two places in the New Testament. One is in that 1 Corinthians passage, and one is in uh, Colossians. Colossians. Where I think angeloi is being used to mean what we would call scriptural teachings, these messages from God, these, these revelations from God. They're messages in the sense that what do messengers, what do angeloi usually do? They reveal something to somebody. So in 1 Corinthians, when he says, because of these angeloi, a woman should have her hair covered, he's just quoted Genesis before that twice and built his whole argument on the relationship between husband and wife taken out of Genesis. So I think he, he's saying, so because of these scriptural teachings, these angeloi, a woman should have her head covered. But that's a fairly rare use of it, I think. So Paul's point is God's communication to humanity. He, the pillar and the cloud and the bush were not the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Exactly. They do not hold all things by the word of his power. That's the point. He's comparing all through history, God has, I mean, he's given plagues and he's sat down to eat and he's done the burning bush thing and he's brought disease. I mean, he's, he has done a lot, of, made his presence known, but never like this. Right, never to never accomplish like the this. same thing. Exactly, exactly. Because in Jesus, we see God if he was a man. Right. Exactly. That's the difference. And That's so the, the context of the comparison is the presentation of God to man, mm-hmm. presenting himself to man. And he's making the, even a quote-unquote angel doesn't even rate that. 
Right. That does not accomplish the same thing in the same way with the same degree of distinctiveness. Jesus is, is, more, dis, more, is more distinguished in the way in which he presents God to mankind than any theophany ever was. Exactly. The exact representation of his being. Right. Because the other things, I mean, they, they do talk about you know, God's power and protection and his will, mm-hmm. but they don't, they don't have a personality and they don't have a character. Mm-hmm. And you don't see them making decisions and making a call at a moment's notice. And, and you don't, they, don't, they don't suffer and die for someone else. Yeah. Okay, we're about out of time. And um, let me give you something to stick in your pipe and smoke while the, this next week. What's significant is the, the doctrine that has developed in Christianity, the Orthodox Christian doctrine that the second person of the Trinity came down and became a man in Jesus, it's different than anything these Jews believe, but it has much more similarity to the kind of Messiah that these Jews wanted than the Messiah that they got. You know, what, what people object to when I present my doctrine of the Incarnation is, but he's not God enough because he doesn't have that God juice in him. He really has to have the real stuff of God himself inside of him in order to be God. And you're calling him God in the way that you're calling him God just isn't God enough. He doesn't have enough divine stuff in him. That's essentially what these people are objecting to. Paul, Jesus of Nazareth, didn't have enough God stuff in him to be the Messiah. So this argument, we need to pay attention to this argument from a different direction. Is look, look at its implications for our doctrine and how we need to rethink and re, reconsider what we believe about Jesus and the nature of Jesus' deity because we've gone the other direction. And what is refuting them, I think, will also refute us. So we need to pay attention to that and see if that's not true. Okay, but we'll do that next week.